All right. Well, come on in and uh, grab a seat. Make sure that you get one of the handouts. We're going to be in, uh, in the handouts pretty heavily today as we can uh, continue our study in apocalyptic literature, the end times, the second coming. Uh, what about a tribulation? What about a rapture? All these kind of uh, juicy topics. So let me say this. These first three lessons have really kind of been uh, introductory, right? So we talked about an intro to eschatology. You know that one's an introduction. And then last week, we talked about eschatology in the Old Testament. We talked about all these things that uh, the Jews were expecting to happen at the end of time, that there would be resurrection and that the gospel would go to all nations and the spirit would be poured out and uh, uh, God would redeem the world and all these kind of things. And by the way, and I'll use my megaphone to say that, all those things begin in the ministry of Jesus, okay? So that's really important to understand. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he does in the middle of time what the Jews were expecting to happen at the end of time. Okay, that's really important. So Zach, are we living in the end times? Yes, but we've been living in the end times for 2,000 years because the end times is a theological category for what happens when people start getting up from the dead and the spirits poured out and Gentiles get saved and these kind of things. Okay, so we have to make sure we don't think of end times just from our perspective, but rather from a Jewish perspective. So we talked about eschatology in the Old Testament uh, last week, and then today we're going to talk about something called apocalyptic literature. What is that? Well, you will know after this class. Now, here's why I say all that. After today, things are going to start actually getting spicy. We've promised you that, but it's going to happen after today. The next two lessons we have are in the book of Revelation. How to understand and an introduction to the book of Revelation, and then what do the symbols stand for in Revelation? Is the locust really an Apache helicopter in 2019 or something like that? The short answer is no. And so uh, come back for those things. All the spicy is going to start after today, but we need one more day of doing some introductory material uh, so that we can understand it. Now, let me explain what apocalyptic literature is and what we're doing today. Before you can understand the book of Revelation, which we're all very interested in, I'm sure, you have to understand the genre in which it's written, okay? The reason we have so much trouble understanding the book of Revelation is because it is written in a genre that we, as 21st century Americans, are not used to at all, okay? I, I guarantee, go to your local Barnes and Noble and say, I would like to see your Jewish apocalyptic section, please, and see how many new works have come out within this genre. The answer is zero, Okay? This is a very specific genre that we are not used to. It's a, a type of literature that we are not used to. And so uh, we have to understand what this is before we can even get into something like the book of Revelation. Let, let me describe it this way. Does everybody know what a genre is? Okay, if you don't, we have a whole lesson on this in our How to Study the Bible series. A genre is a type of literature. Okay? Imagine that you, your entire life, had only read historical narrative. You only read history. You've never seen a poem. And then all of a sudden, somebody gives you a poem, that would freak you out. You're like, what kind of terrible story is this? It's only a few lines, it's short, some of it rhymes, it's really figurative. This is the worst thing I've ever read. You would have no idea how to read that if you had never heard of poetry or you had never read a poem. That's how we come to apocalyptic literature. Most of us have not read something like Second Baruch, and so we're not used to apocalyptic literature. So when we come to the book of Revelation, we don't really know how to approach it. And so the hope of this lesson is really to set you up with an entire genre of literature that is very unfamiliar to us as uh, 21st century English-speaking Americans with the hope that books like Daniel and Revelation and these kind of things are able to come alive after we understand it. But before we do that, I wanna talk a little bit about biblical genres, okay? There is no such thing as just reading the Bible. You're always interpreting the Bible and you have to interpret it according to its correct genre. I'm gonna keep using that, that word, that French word genre, 
and, uh, and we're gonna explain what it is. So let me give you some examples of different genres. Again, they're different types of literature. So here's one. Roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme and some don't. What kind of genre is that? What is it? What was it? Well, okay, mixed between what? Poetry and a joke, right? It was a joke genre and it was poetry, okay? Let me give you another genre. Congenial absence of vitamin D binding protein resulted in normocalcemia and a relatively mild disruption of bone metabolism, in this case complicated by severe autoimmune disease. What is that? Made perfect sense to Dr. Steve. He's like, I got it. That's no problem at all. That's, that's a real page turner. Uh, keeps you awake at night. Uh, that, that's like medical scientific language. I literally just opened a medical journal and copied and pasted that into that, okay? But that's a different type of genre. If you try to write your wife a love letter that is like, my heart palpitation increases when I see you, that doesn't work, okay? It doesn't work. It's scientific. Here's another one. This is a great one. In that direction, the cat said, waving its right paw around, lives a hatter. And in that direction, waving the other paw, lives a March hare. Visit either if you like. They're both mad. But I don't want to go among mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. How do you know that I'm mad, said Alice. You must be, said the cat, or else you wouldn't have come here. Okay? What type of genre is that? Yeah, fiction. It's uh, from uh, Lewis Carroll, who, by the way, was a bit of a creeper. His famous and brilliant work, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Let me give you another one. The first device identified as a gun, a bamboo tube that used gunpowder to fire a spear appeared in China around 1000 AD. The Chinese had previously invented gunpowder in the ninth century. That's just history, right? It's just a historical fact. So we have a bunch of different kinds of genres and it's really important that you understand the genre or else you can't understand the words. Okay, so let me me give you the example I've used several times in here. If I write my wife a love letter and I say, I love you so much, my heart hurts and I think I might die. And I write my doctor a letter and it says, my heart hurts and I think I might die. I've used the exact same words and the meaning has completely changed just because of the genre, okay? So you have to understand, we don't just interpret words, we interpret words in a context and that context is partially dependent upon the type of literature that we're in. Everybody with me? So what we're doing today is we're learning about a genre of literature called apocalyptic so that when we read things in the Bible that are apocalyptic, we have a category for it. If you had never read poetry, it's going to be really hard for you to understand uh, poetry. If you've never read apocalyptic, it's hard to understand apocalyptic. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So because this is new, I've included four definitions of apocalyptic for you. And so we'll go through this. The first one's my definition. What is apocalyptic literature? Apocalyptic is a genre of Jewish literature that seeks to encourage God's people who are being oppressed by non-believers by letting them see reality from heaven's perspective. It uses vivid non-literal imagery to let them know who really controls the world, how everything will end, how the wicked will be judged, and how the righteous will be vindicated. Though it may look like evil is winning, apocalyptic literature lets us know that God will be victorious in the end. Okay? That's what it does. It takes people who are looking around. Here's what apocalyptic does. When you as a Christian look around and you think, man, we're the underdogs, it lets you see things from God's perspective and you realize the devil's the underdog. Okay, that's really what apocalyptic literature does. Let me give you another definition. 
This comes from a guy named John J. Collins. Who's John J. Collins? He is one of the top apocalyptic literature experts in the world. He's a professor at Yale, and he is married to a New Testament professor at Yale, Adele Yarbrough Collins. So you talk about a a power couple. Uh, That's them, but here's the definition. An apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality, which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation, and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world, okay? The next definition comes from David uh, Owney. Who's David Owney? He has the standard uh, commentary in Revelation. So there's a bunch of Revelation commentaries. Most are bad. Of the academic ones, some of those are really good. His is exceptional. It's three volumes, though, and it is not for the faint of heart. So it's very technical, but it's really good. Here's what he says. That it's literature intended to interpret present earthly circumstances in light of the supernatural world and of the future and to influence the understanding and behavior of the audience by means of divine authority. And then the last definition comes from a bad guy. Bart Ehrman is certainly no friend of Christianity. He uh, lost his faith, which means he never had it, when he was in seminary and has devoted his life to trying to destroy Christianity. But he has a great definition of apocalyptic literature, and here's what it is. Apocalyptic literature is a sci-fi theodicy for the oppressed. A theodicy is the wrestle of how there can be God and there be evil in the world. Theodicy is this wrestle of how can God be good and all-powerful and yet there's evil in the world? And so his definition is, when you're asking that question, how can God be good and how is there evil in the world? Apocalyptic literature is a sci-fi theodicy for the oppressed. It's people who are oppressed, who are trying to figure out why evil is happening to them, and it uses all this sci-fi imagery in the sense that it uses this figurative, the stars will fall from the sky and the moon will turn to blood and these kind of things. And so uh, those are some definitions there. So... With all those definitions, in your own words, who can give me a summary of what apocalyptic literature is without looking at your sheet, you cheaters? Without looking at your sheet. Who's so bold? I will stand here until somebody does this because this is part of the lesson. Or I will call on someone, which will be even more fun. I'll find the most introverted person in the room and I'll make them stand. Somebody want to take a shot. What is apocalyptic literature? Somebody comes to you and says, how should I even approach reading something like Daniel or Ezekiel or the book of Revelation? What are some things you're going to tell them? That's excellent. It's figurative language written to those who are oppressed to encourage them in their faith, despite what they see is happening. That's a great definition. See, you crushed it. Good job. Good job, Katie. Uh, Okay. So a few things. Let's talk about a few things to know about apocalyptic literature, okay? First of all, let's talk about uh, why it's called apocalyptic literature. This is the Greek word uh, apokalupsis, and uh, that's where we get our word apocalypse. That word means an unveiling, okay? That's what it means, or a revelation. Fun fact for you, the book of Revelation is not actually its title, okay? It's not actually called Revelation. In Greek, it's uh, Apocalypsis Ioannou, the Apocalypse of John is literally what it's called. An apocalypse is a revealing or an unveiling. The idea is if you have a curtain, you don't know what's behind it, and then God moves the curtain, that's an apocalypse, okay? That's the idea. So if you've ever seen Price is Right or something, there's a lot of uh, apocalypses going on in uh, in the price is right, but that's what it means, okay? It just means an unveiling or a revelation. That's why we actually use the term revelation, even though in Greek the title is the uh, Apocalypse of John. When is it written? Most apocalyptic literature comes from between 250 BC to 250 AD. 
okay? So it's not just all written within uh, the intertestamental period, okay? That's not true. It, a lot of it comes after the time of the New Testament, but, uh, but it typically comes from this uh, time period, 250 B.C. through 250 A.D., although some books, such as Daniel, are much earlier, Okay, Daniel's written before 250 B.C., obviously, and uh, it uh, has a lot of apocalyptic elements. Now, the, the, the most common books known for this genre, there are only two in Scripture that are really known for this genre. Okay? They are the books of Daniel and Revelation. Okay? Those are the only two books in Scripture that are, have a huge amount of apocalyptic in them, where they might like even be the majority. That's what's in them. Okay? Uh, as well as, and I'm going to name some outside of Scripture. Okay, again, as we're looking at apocalyptic literature, we have to look at some books outside of the Bible. This does not mean that I think they should be in the Bible. They should not be in the Bible. The Bible's perfect. We should not add to it. The reason we study books outside of the Bible, though, is to understand the history and the worldview and the thinking of Jews at that time to help us better understand the Bible. So some big-time apocalyptic books outside of the Bible are 4th Ezra, 1st Enoch, 2nd Enoch, 2nd Baruch, 3rd Baruch, and the Apocalypse of Abraham. Anybody do your devotional this morning out of 2nd Enoch? No? Nobody? Okay, good. You're good Protestants. However, now hear what I'm about to say. This is important. There are apocalyptic elements throughout the Bible. Okay, so the primary two books are Daniel and Revelation, but all throughout the Old Testament and in places of the New, books such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, in the New Testament, when Jesus is doing, uh, you know, the Olivet Discourse and these kind of things, those are, uh, those are places where apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic literature is used throughout the Bible, okay? There's primarily two kinds of apocalyptic literature. Some apocalypses trace a storyline through different periods of time. That's called historic apocalyptic. And then others show you the journey of someone up into the heavens, Mystic apocalyptic, okay, is what that's called. So an angel will come and say, come up here and see what's happening, or you get kind of this, uh, uh, what's the, uh, is it a beautiful, uh, what is the, the Christmas movie where the ghost takes him on and he's able to see all the things that could have been? That's kind of like mystic apocalyptic. What's the name of that? A Christmas Carol, that's true. That's the Scrooge one. It's a wonderful life. That's what I'm thinking of. Both of those do that, though. That's kind of what happens in apocalyptic sometimes. And Angel's like, let me show you what these other things are happening. So you get to see things from God's perspective or from down in hell or whatever it is. And so you see that there. And then the last thing to know, and this is really important, the imagery is highly symbolic. That's not us devaluing the Bible. That's not us saying the parts of the Bible that are literal, you shouldn't take literally. It's to say when we approach a book like Revelation, you have to understand the genre has changed. If you read all poetry as if it was literal, the problem is not with the poetry, it's with you. If you read apocalyptic as if it's all literal, the problem is not with the genre God has chosen to use to reveal himself to us. The problem is with us, okay? Now, let's talk about some apocalyptic literature outside the Bible. Impress your friends, okay? First, First Enoch. Let's talk about that. That's a big one. That was written sometime. We're not exactly sure. That's why I put the C for circa there between 200 BC and 50 AD. It is a book composed of five sections. The first is the book of the Watchers. That's chapters 1 through 36. The second is the book of similitudes, that's chapters 37 through 71. The third is the book of astronomical writings, that's chapters 72 through 82. The fourth is the book of dreams and visions. And the fifth is the book of the epistle of Enoch, chapters 91 through 107. Now, the most interesting part of First Enoch is that first part because it talks about the fall of evil angels. Where do demons come from? How does the devil fall? These kind of things. That's what it talks about in First Enoch, okay? These, demon, these angels who rebel against God fall, and they come and they teach humanity all these bad things, like how to make weapons. And they teach uh, women how to make cosmetics so they can seduce men, okay? By the way, what is the biblical term for putting on makeup? Anybody know? 
In the Old Testament, it's she painted her eyes. That's the phrase. Painted her eyes is the phrase they use for putting on makeup. Makeup's fine, by the way. That wasn't a, that wasn't a dig. I don't agree with First Enoch. It's not in the Bible. Uh, I like weapons. Uh, and so, uh, anyway, but it's very interesting. Did anybody here see the Noah movie with uh, Russell Crowe that came out? It was tremendously disappointing. <laughs> it was awful and had nothing to do with the biblical account. My favorite and least favorite part of the terrible movie was to help him build his ark, there are these rock monsters. Now, those are not in Genesis. Where do those come from? First Enoch. In First Enoch, when these angels rebel, God sentences them to be trapped in the lower parts of the earth. So those are actually fallen angels that are all encrusted in earth because they've been trapped, and that's what the author was trying to, uh, to refer to, uh, but overall, the movie made me sad. Next, Baruch. Written around circa 200 AD, it explains, although the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, evil men will one day be destroyed and the true Jerusalem still stands in heaven. So Baruch, which is written after the destruction of the temple, is written to Jews to try to encourage them. Don't worry that the Romans tore down the temple. God's real temple still stands. Be encouraged. That's the point of uh, Baruch, and it's divided into several parts as well. The Apocalypse of Abraham, circa 70 AD through 200 AD explains Abraham's conversion from paganism and uses the promises of Genesis 15 to elaborate on eschatological details. Okay, so it is a work of uh, Jewish apocalyptic that's also apologetic. It's also giving a defense for Father Abraham, who had many sons. And so it talks about how the superiority of Judaism to paganism, and it talks about how uh, it uses that promise of Genesis 15 about him having a bunch of descendants and inheriting the whole world, and it uses a lot of eschatological imagery. The Apocalypse of Zephaniah, written circa 100 B.C. through 100 A.D., explains the visions of the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah as he sees the wicked judged and the righteous vindicated, okay? Not to confuse that with actual Zephaniah. This is a different thing, okay? The Shepherd of Hermas, written between 100 A.D. and 160 A.D. This is a very early Christian writing. Now, this one's interesting because most apocalyptic we have is Jewish, but you do have early Christian apocalyptic as well, and this is one of those. Very early Christian writing at the time of the Apostolic Fathers, okay, those are the very early church leaders, uh, where a former slave named Hermas is given five visions, 12 mandates, and 10 parables. The first four visions have typical apocalyptic elements. The Shepherd of Hermas is one of the books that they were debating in the early church of whether or not it should be included in the canon of Scripture. They ultimately decided, no, it's not written by an apostle or someone who knew an apostle, and it comes too late, but they did discuss it. It was very influential in the thinking of uh, a lot of the early church. Second Estrus, which is also called Fourth Ezra, those are the same thing. Circa 70 AD through 218 AD, a work ascribed to the biblical character Ezra, where he is asking God, while evil men are flourishing and righteous Jews suffering, such as in the Babylonian captivity. Again, you see this idea in apocalyptic where someone is saying, God, when I look around the world, it doesn't look like this is true. It doesn't look like you're true. It doesn't look like you're succeed. It looks like evil is winning. Apocalyptic is meant to say, don't let your eyes fool you. God wins ultimately. And in the meantime, we suffer. We go through these difficult things, okay? Now, that was a lot of really technical stuff, so everybody shake out the cobwebs for a second. What we're going to do for the rest of this lesson is we're going to look at some common marks of apocalyptic literature. That way, when we get into Revelation over the next two weeks, you're going to see these things pop up over and over again, okay? So my hope is to give you a skeleton, and then as time goes on, like the Valley of Dry Bones, to attach flesh to that skeleton, uh, that was some apocalyptic imagery for you. You're welcome. Number one, common marks of apocalyptic literature. First, pseudonymity. Who knows what pseudonymity is? 
Who knows what pseudonymity? <laughs> We've talked about this before. It, it's, it's where something is claims to, where someone claims to be someone that they're not. Pseudos means false. Nimity refers to a name. Okay, so a pseudonym is uh, like uh, Mark Twain is his pseudonym. His real name is something like Samuel Clemens, or the rapper Eminem. Uh, and his real name is Marshall Mathers. I would change that too. If I was a rapper named Marshall, I don't think I would, uh, I'd go very far. That's a pseudonym. That's where you take on a fake name. Now, not all apocalyptic works are pseudonyms. So for example, Revelation is written by John. That's not someone claiming to be John. That's an actual John. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of times, apocalyptic literature claims to be written by somebody it's not written by. Why would somebody do that? Why, if I'm trying to write a book to a bunch of Jews to encourage them, would I take on a different name than Zach, the Jew? A fear of persecution, possibly. Possibly fear of persecution. What else? That's the bigger one. The bigger one is that it lends authority to what they're saying. If you think something's written by Zach, the Jew, you don't care. But if I say, my name is Abraham, maybe you've heard of me and here's a work you've never read, then you're like, oh, Abraham wrote this, and it gives it a lot of authority, okay? So they have a tendency to, uh, to do that. So I'll give you some examples. First Enoch, 1-1. One, one. The word of the blessing of Enoch, how he blessed the elect and the righteous who were to exist in the time of trouble, rejecting all the wicked and ungodly. Enoch, a righteous man who was with God. This author is claiming to be the Old Testament figure of Enoch, despite the fact that this is written hundreds, if not thousands of years after Enoch lived, okay? So it was not actually written by the Enoch. Or look at this one, the Apocalypse of Abraham, which again, written a long time after Abraham, says this, I then, Abraham, at the time when my lot came. That's how it begins in uh, the Apocalypse of Abraham 1-2. Or in 2 Baruch, you guys remember who Baruch is? Who knows who Baruch is? See how well you know your Old Testament. He was the last president, right? <laughs> yes, the last, uh, last president, that's right. Yes, yes, Baruch Obama, <laughs> correct. Uh, yes, uh, anybody know who Baruch is? Jeremiah's scribe points to the points to the uh, to the the, the pastor there, uh, Paul Mathis. Yes, so uh, yes, so uh, Baruch to uh, uh, it was Jeremiah's scribe, and it says this. And it came to pass in the twenty-fifth year of Jeconiah, king of Judah, that the word of the Lord came to Baruch, the son of Neriah, and he said to him. And it continues on with what that revelation is. It even gives him the, the phrase the son of Neriah, which is true in the Old Testament when it references Baruch, not written by Baruch. So here's all you need to know. Most of the time, when you're reading apocalyptic literature, it's not written by who it claims to be written by, to end a sentence and preposition, okay? Uh, sometimes it is, example, like in Revelation or, or, or something like that, but typically it's not. Here's the second mark of apocalyptic literature. The mediation of the vision or revelation by a spiritual being, okay? Meaning, typically, the message is given by an angel, and it's typically given to somebody who's like a wise man, what's called a seer. You hear that language in apocalyptic studies, a seer, okay? I'll give you some examples. First Enoch 1-2, saw the vision of the Holy One in the heavens, which the angels showed me. And from them I heard everything, and from them I understood as I saw, but not for this generation. Now, this is something that also is true of the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 1-1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take, take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Notice that there is an angel that will be interacting. There's actually several angels that will be interacting with, uh, with uh, uh, John throughout the book. Zechariah, again, also in the actual Bible, Zechariah 2, 2 through 3. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what it's width and what it's length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. 
So one of the common elements within apocalyptic literature is this otherworldly being, typically an angel, delivers the message, shows you something, takes you up to heaven, come up here, it's not about the rapture, it's about John seeing this eschatological vision. So let's look now at number three. A heavenly vision or otherworldly trip. That's a typical element in apocalyptic literature. Let's look at a few places. I've included all ones from the uh, Bible on this one. So you can see this isn't just books outside of the Bible that are apocalyptic. There are elements in the Bible that are apocalyptic. Ezekiel 1.1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, uh, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Daniel 4.13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher. By the way, that's a phrase against two angels. Notice first Enoch and the watchers. A holy one came down from heaven. Revelation 4.1. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which had heard, uh, I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So another element that is very common in apocalyptic literature is this otherworldly trip, this vision that the prophet or seer or whatever is being shown. That is a common one. Is this good? Is this fun? Or is this just too weird? This is a weird, this is a weird kind of lesson, kind of a weird lecture. Okay. Number four of 36. Now, how many do we have here? We have, uh, oh, I think only like 11-ish or so. Number four. This one is very common. Okay, you will see this all throughout the Bible. Jeff talked about this already. He said that, uh, so in one of his lessons, he said that what the prophets will do, what is called prophetic foreshortening where they will say, this thing is about to happen. We're right on the cusp of it. We're right on top of it. But really, it might take a long time before it happens because they are trying to say the event is huge. The event will happen. But they talk about it as though it's happening right now or about to happen, even though it might not happen for a while. That is a common feature in apocalyptic literature, a quickly approaching eschatological context. Let me show you a few examples. Isaiah 56.1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Okay. Well, whatever soon means, it apparently means longer than what we typically think of as soon. Revelation twenty two twelve. behold, I am coming soon. Again, whatever soon means, it hasn't happened for 2,000 years. And so, again, it soon doesn't mean the same thing to you that it means to God or to apocalyptic literature. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Revelation 1.3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near, okay? So that's a common feature in apocalyptic literature, this emphasis that it's about to happen. Repent, turn away, trust Christ, forsake what's evil, don't lose hope, don't give in, die as a martyr if you have to because salvation is coming, quote unquote, soon. Number five, glory. What do I mean by glory here? That word can mean a lot of things. I mean a view of the world from heaven's perspective. A view of the world from heaven's perspective. Here's a big tip in understanding the book of Revelation. If you're a Jew in the first century and Rome is persecuting you and you might be killed because of your faith and it seems like Rome is unstoppable and they are winning, all of a sudden when in Revelation it flashes to a picture of the throne room of God where all the angels are bowing down and worshiping him and he is on the throne and the lamb is on the throne because he's also God and uh, there's all this beautiful stuff. It's meant to encourage you because it's giving you things from heaven's perspective. Down here, it looks like the beast, Rome, is winning, but from God's perspective, God is winning and so take heart, take heart. A few examples, Daniel 7.10. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. First Enoch 9, 1. 
Then Michael and Gabriel, the only two uh, angels mentioned explicitly in Scripture, Raphael, Suriel, and Uriel. See, you didn't even know those were angels, okay? There you go. So now you get some extra thinking and Jewish thought of different names uh, for angels there. Looked down from heaven and saw the quantity of blood which was shed on earth and all the inquiry which was, I'm sorry, iniquity which was done upon it and said to one another, is it the voice of their cries? Notice it's giving you something from the angel's perspective in this case as they're looking down on the earth. Revelation 4, 1 through 3. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Okay? So a view from heaven's perspective is a big part of apocalyptic literature. Let's get into number six. A final judgment of evil and a final blessing for God's people. Okay? This is a big one. If you had to pick one theme in apocalyptic literature that is the most important, here is the one that it is. So if you forget all these, all these are kind of confusing. I realize this is kind of heady. Most of us don't read First Enoch or whatever, so please hear what I'm about to say. The main thing you're gonna see in apocalyptic literature is the condemnation of evil and the vindication of the righteous. It is always meant to be an encouragement to you to say, God will vindicate the righteous, so hang on there, and he will judge the wicked. How can we forgive other people who have hurt us because we know God won't? Let go and let God who doesn't let go. That's meant to be a biblical encouragement to you, okay? That's meant to be a biblical encouragement to you. But let's look at a few of these passages. First Enoch 1.9. And behold, he cometh with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict uh, all flesh of the works of their ungodliness with uh, which they have, uh, I'm sorry, which the, no, it's supposed to say, which the ungodly committed. So I've added an extra word there, but I don't care because that's not in the Bible. So I don't care if I butcher it. First Enoch 1.8, but with the righteous. So notice the condemnation of the wicked. Now look at the other side of that, which comes the, just the verse before. But with the righteous, he will make peace and he will protect the elect. By the way, is election a Jewish idea, not just a Calvinistic idea? It is. Hashtag deal with it. And mercy shall be upon them and they shall all belong to God and they shall all be prospered. And they shall all be blessed, and he will help them all, and light shall appear unto them, and he will make peace with them. There's this encouragement that God is coming, and he will crush the wicked, but he will vindicate the righteous. Now, let's look at these next, Q, uh, next two. One QM, what's called the War Scroll. This, comes, uh, th- this is from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by this Jewish sectarian community out in Qumran, and this is one of their scrolls that talks about this end times eschatological battle. I remember having to write a paper on uh, the war scroll, and it's fascinating. So uh, 1QM, 1, 8 through 9 says this, look. Then at the time appointed by God, his great excellence shall shine for all the times of eternity, for peace and blessing, glory and joy, and long life for all the sons of light, meaning those who are part of the Qumran community, the righteous, those who follow God truly. Or look again at 1, 6 through 7 and 15. There shall be no survivors of all the sons of darkness, Belial, which is another name for the devil, and all the angels of his dominion and all the men of his forces shall be destroyed forever. There is a big theme of final judgment. There's a big theme of crushing the evil and vindicating the righteous in apocalyptic literature. Number seven, cosmic, lavish, cataclysmic imagery, okay? So let me say this. Don't get mad. Don't get mad. I just have to keep you awake because we're just reading a bunch of facts. Um, You guys know when people get on TV and they start talking about things like blood moons and these kind of things? 
They have no idea what that means to anybody in the first century, before the first century, after the first century, Jewish history or Christian history, okay? Apocalyptic literature is symbolic, okay? You're not literally meant to look up at the moon and say, oh man, because of pollution, it's looking a little bit red today. I think the end is here. You know why? Because it doesn't look that way for anyone else in the world, okay? Remember that. Remember when you try to predict the end of the world, for the other half of the world, they're already a day ahead of you. Okay. First Enoch 1.6, and the high mountains shall be shaken, and the high hills shall be made low, and shall melt like wax before the flame. There's this idea that big things are happening. God is fixing the world, redeeming the world, purging the world, and so it uses this starry, cataclysmic, volcano-y kind of imagery to do that. Look here in Mark, okay? So notice here we got some in the New Testament uh, as well outside of Revelation. Mark 13, 24 through 26. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Revelation 6, 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon became like blood. Okay? Again, cataclysmic imagery. It's not literal. It's literal to say God's redeeming the world and judging people and big stuff is happening, but it doesn't mean every time you see a shooting star, you're like, I knew it. I bet Russia just signed a deal with China. Okay? It's not like that. It's not like that. Number eight, symbolic numbers and periods of time. This is huge. Symbolic numbers and periods of time. This is a very common feature throughout apocalyptic literature. Let me give you a few examples. Revelation 2.1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We'll talk about what those are in two weeks when we talk about the symbols of Revelation. But notice that the number seven is used a lot, the number 1,000 is used a lot, the number three is used a lot, uh, the number 40 is used a lot. There's a bunch of numbers that are used constantly in apocalyptic literature. Revelation 7.4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. We'll talk about what that means in a couple weeks as well. Daniel 7.25, look at this one, when we talk about periods of time. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Time, times, and half a time. You'll see that kind of language used throughout apocalyptic literature. One, two, three more. Three more, and then we'll talk about something else. Number nine, dualism. Dualism, good versus evil. This is a huge theme in apocalyptic literature, good versus evil. I'll give you some examples. Daniel 10, 12 through 13. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. This is one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. Here's what happens. An angel shows up to Daniel, and he's like, sorry, I'm late. I got into a scuffle with a demon, and so so another angel had to come help me out, but now I'm here. Have you ever thought that maybe my prayer got delayed because an angel got into a fight over Iraq or whatever it is, okay? That's what he's doing. Calling angels princes is a common theme, by the way, in, uh, in Old Testament literature. And so that's what's going on. But notice the fight. I was trying to get here. Angels aren't everywhere, by the way. The devil's not everywhere. The devil cannot read your mind. Only God is everywhere. Only God can read your mind. Only God is God. Angels have to travel. Sure, they're probably faster than you and me, but they have to travel. And uh, so sometimes they get stuck in a demonic, you know, kind of like air current or something. And so there's, uh, there's conflict before they can get there. And that's what's going on here in this passage. Revelation 12, 7. 
Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Revelation will tell you explicitly that the dragon is that ancient serpent of old, the devil and Satan, okay? And so that's what's going on. Spiritual warfare, good versus evil, is a huge theme when it comes to apocalyptic literature. Number 10, this one is a big one, okay? This one's, we'll see this a lot in Revelation. A warning of persecution and or an encouragement to stay faithful. So when we used Ehrman's definition that it is a sci-fi theodicy for the oppressed, this here focuses on the oppressed. As Christians, we will be persecuted. There were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. Did you know that? Most people don't know that. They think that martyrdom was something that happened in the first century. No, no, under the Nazis, under Stalin, under uh, those in China, under these kind of things around the world, we have a tendency to think too much like Americans instead of thinking worldwide. There were more Christians in the 20th century, that's the 1900s, than any other century, than all the other centuries of Christian martyrs combined, okay? So persecution is happening, so we need a word of encouragement. Should I forsake Jesus? Should I get out of this pain? I don't wanna lose my job, I don't wanna lose my house, I don't wanna lose my family, I don't wanna go to jail, I don't wanna be tortured, I don't wanna be martyred. And so apocalyptic literature says, hang in there, hang in there. Christ is coming, everything is going to be okay. It is better to suffer a little now than for eternity. Hang in there, hang in there. Luke 11, 49 through 51. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. There's this warning of judgment, this warning of persecution and an encouragement to stay faithful. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, which has more to do with the staying faithful. Then he opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. One, where do you go right when you die while you're waiting for resurrection? If you're a Christian, you go to rest with Jesus, okay? Your body goes into the ground, but you go to rest with Christ until you're reunited with your body at uh, resurrection. Additionally, notice that it is specifically Christians who are being martyred during this time of persecution. So if you have some sort of theology that says Christians are evaporated and sucked out of here and we don't go through persecution, I'd encourage you to read more of Revelation 6. Revelation 2.11 he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, meaning judgment, condemnation, okay? And we could mention others, but for our study today, lastly, number 11, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, usually with a messianic figure, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? What would the world look like if there was no opposition to God's reign? There were no demons that rebelled against God. There were no humans that rebelled against God, and all the effects of the fall were gone. Imagine that for a second. You know what that would look like? Eden, right? That's what it would look like, where there's no opposition to God, there's no rebellion against God, and there's no effects of the fall. The message of the kingdom of God is that in Christ, God is getting us back to Eden even better. That's why the Bible starts with a garden but ends with a city. The New Jerusalem's even better than Eden. So this message of the kingdom of God is God is going to come, he's going to crush his enemies, demonic and human, and he's gonna reverse the effects of the fall, and then everything will be great because he's a good ruler. Why do we get fired up about politics? Well, because if you have a good leader, things go well, and if you have a bad leader, things go poorly. What happens if you have a perfect leader like God and he gets rid of all bad? 
Life would be pretty great. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, and that's a constant theme in apocalyptic literature, usually with a messianic figure. I'll give you some examples. Revelation 12.10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Notice the kingdom has broken in, the devil has been crushed, and Christ is the Messiah. First Enoch 46, 4 through 5. And this son of man whom thou hast seen shall rise up uh, the kings and the mighty from their seats and the strong from their thrones and shall loosen the reins of the strong and break the teeth of sinners. And he shall put down the kings from their thrones and kingdoms because they do not extol and praise him nor humbly acknowledge whence the kingdom was bestowed upon them. And he shall put down the countenance of the strong and shall fill them with shame. See, even outside of the Bible, there's this idea that God comes breaks in his kingdom, judges the wicked, puts in his Messiah as the king. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, okay? So those are the common themes that you need to be aware of throughout the rest of our study this semester. When you see an angel give a message, you need to think apocalyptic. When you see uh, a, uh, a vision of heaven, you need to think apocalyptic. When you see good versus bad, spiritual warfare, you need to think apocalyptic. When you see persecution and an encouragement to stay faithful, you need to think apocalyptic. When you see the inbreaking of the kingdom of God or Messiah, you need to think apocalyptic. When you see this uh, judgment of the evil and the vindication of the righteous, you need to think apocalyptic. So with that in mind, let me give you a few tips and then uh, I'm going to have Jeff come up after that. So I want to give us just a few extra minutes for Q&A today just because this is kind of a weird lesson. Uh, but I want to give you a few tips on how to read apocalyptic literature, okay? A few things to keep in mind. These are a bit simpler than what we just did. Number one, it is written by people being persecuted, okay? It is written by people being persecuted. There is a strong Job feeling to a lot of apocalyptic literature, God, why is this happening if I'm righteous? Why is this happening if you and I are in covenant? And what, uh, what this is meant to do is to answer that question. Hang in there. This is going to happen. All of the Bible is going to say that if you're God's people, you're going to be oppressed. But hang in there because God will put the world back to rights and it's already begun. Number two, know that the language is highly symbolic. Know that the language is highly symbolic. If you try to read Lord of the Rings literally and apply it to today things will go awry. If you try to read or watch Star Wars and apply everything in Star Wars literally and then try to apply it to today, things will get weird. The same is true for the book of Revelation, okay? Remember, it's genre. It's genre is not intended for every little piece of it to be taken with a wooden literalism. It has a literal point. Jesus is coming back. The world has beastly kingdoms. You should remain faithful, etc. But the language used to express that literal point is highly symbolic and figurative. Here's a really helpful tip. Much of its imagery is derived from the Old Testament. Do not read Revelation in light of your newspaper. Read it in light of the Old Testament, okay? For example, horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation. What is that about? Well, you could flip open to Zechariah and see where there are four horsemen there, and maybe it would give you a hint. Or what about the beast? Who's the beast? We've got to watch out for the beast. He's some sort of bad guy that persecutes Christians. Why don't you flip open to Daniel, where the exact same kind of beast is described, and see who it is there? 
Or why are they measuring the temple? What's this whole temple measurements that this gate's this big and this angel comes and he's got several cubits and all these kind of things? Well, maybe you look where an angel measures the temple in Ezekiel and the temple dimensions given there and it gives you a hint. Number four, it links the theological and the political. It links the theological and the political. Eschatological uh, writings are not meant to just be something you think about. It is meant to teach you how to exist, especially in persecution, and what the uh, interplay is between Christ's kingdom and worldly kingdoms, okay? So it is meant to be highly political. One of the most political, one of the most anti-political, one of the most anti-imperial books of your Bible is the book of Revelation, which is written in direct contrast to Rome. Number five, it has an in-group and an out-group. The in-group are those who know Christ, know God, the faithful, the Jews, whoever it is in the particular uh, work that you're working through, and the out-group are the unrighteous, okay? The Bible is fine with in-groups and out-groups. We live in a culture that despises that. They don't want some people to be a part of something that other people can't be a part of. The Bible loves that, though. There's an in-group, and everyone else is outside of that. It is an us-versus-them kind of mentality, at least when it comes to apocalyptic literature. Number six, it is proleptic. What does that word mean? It is proleptic. Already but not yet is the idea. It's something that's begun, but it's not finished. Okay? It's something that's begun, but it's not finished. Let me ask this question. Has Jesus already defeated the devil? The answer is yes and no. Yes, he's ultimately defeated because the cross took away his power to, uh, uh, to own mankind and these kind of things, but we're still waiting for him to be thrown into the lake of fire. So yes, he's already defeated, but not fully yet. Okay? Are you already redeemed? Yes and no. Yes, you're already justified. You have the spirit. You're going to be saved. You're already saved and you're in fellowship with God, but you're still waiting to be glorified. You're still waiting to be resurrected. It's yes and no. You see a lot of that in apocalyptic literature, that it's proleptic. It's already, it's begun, but it's not completed yet. Number seven, don't read it like it's a code. Don't read it like it's a code. Okay? Again, if I write, let's say again, a letter to my wife with all this poetic imagery, she doesn't need to sit down and say, okay, well, here he says his heart is like a flower, and here he says his heart is on fire. I bet it's like a flower that's on fire. That's not how you do, I mean, you don't read it like it's a code. Every little word does not have a correspondence to something else. It, it paints in big brush strokes. Uh, it, it paints with very broad pictures. And then lastly, number eight, try to understand it in its original time and situation instead of trying to read it in light of today's events, okay? Try to understand it in its original time and situation instead of trying to read it in light of today's events. We've said this before, but I will say it again. Any interpretation you have of anything in the Bible that would not have made sense to the original audience is a wrong interpretation. God has written his word for Christians, not just 21st century American Christians, and so revelation has to make sense to all Christians of all periods of church history. You with me? Okay, so keep that in mind. But Zach, Aren't we in the last days? We've all been in the last days for 2,000 years. The last days is what happens post-Christ. Okay, that's all the last days, okay? 100% of people who've tried to predict the end of the world have been wrong. Everybody thinks it's happening in their generation. Why? Because it is to an extent. Because the end times begins with the coming of Christ. Okay, Jeffrey, come on up here with some sweet questions and uh, unmute your mic with our new soundboard and we will make this thing happen. Well, this Q&A, like apocalyptic literature, is already and not yet. It's begun, but all the good stuff hasn't gotten up here yet, but, uh, but it's coming. It's coming.
Check. Check yeah. one. There it is. There it is. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, first question. Are the biblical accounts of the deaths of Enoch and Elijah uh, literal, or is that like mystic apocalyptic? You want to take that? Just because we dealt with Enoch. Yeah, I mean, when we say deaths for those characters, we're talking about them being going up into heaven with God is kind of the idea. And I think those are meant to be literal. Why? Because the genre that they're written in is historical narrative. Okay? I think the idea is that God goes ahead and fellowships with them without them having to go through the same kind of process of death that we would typically go through. But I think that because of the genre, and I think that how those figures are interpreted elsewhere, uh, not because I'm just saying that's weird or not weird. Okay? So you have to have a, if you're going to say that something is symbolic or literal, you have to give reasons for why you believe that's the case. You can't just say, this seems weird, so it must be figurative or whatever it might be. So in Jewish other Jewish writings outside of the Bible, they take those stories literally. The Bible seems to take those stories literally. Uh, and so that's typically how I would take it. But I'm happy for any thoughts or insight. Uh, if Enoch was such a righteous man, why was the book of Enoch left out of the Bible? So I'll, I'll take that. So first off, uh, as we talked about, uh, one of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature is that it tends to be uh, written under a pseudonym. And so the first reason would be Enoch didn't actually write it. And, uh, and so uh, the book was written hundreds, if not thousands of years after Enoch uh, lived. And uh, the second reason would be, even if he did write it, just because someone who was righteous wrote something, or just because someone who is a prophet wrote something, doesn't mean that it's necessarily in Scripture. We actually have evidence from Paul's writings that he wrote other letters that aren't actually included in, uh, in Scripture. So the fact that somebody wrote something who happens to be an apostle or a prophet or whatever it might be doesn't make it uh, Scripture. What makes it Scripture is God's inspiration process. And so uh, even if Enoch would have written the book of Enoch, that would not have necessarily made it uh, Scripture. Anything to add to that? Yeah, and they didn't include it in Scripture because the Old Testament was already canonized way before First Enoch was written. So that came... I mean, hundreds to thousands of years after you have Old Testament biblical books. So it was never considered to be part of the canon because Jews never considered it to be part of the canon because it didn't exist yet. And so, yeah. Uh, next question. Why should we believe or take heart to these books that are not in, uh, in the Bible? So I'll, let me give an initial thought and then turn it over to you. So what we're not saying is that you need to believe the book of Enoch or you need to believe Baruch, or you need to believe some of these other uh, writings. What we're saying is you need to understand the genre so that when you get to the same genre in Scripture, you can understand that, because that's what you need to believe. You need to believe the Bible. You don't need to believe the book of Enoch, but you need to understand the way that apocalyptic literature functions, and that could be helpful. Uh, it's kind of like doing, um, you know what a lexicon is? Kind of like a dictionary. Uh, and so one of the things that uh, scholars do when they're looking at what does this word mean in regards to Scripture is they look not merely at the way that the word functions in the Bible, but how does it function in extra-biblical literature? That's going to help us understand how does the culture understand that word. So when we get to the word in the Bible, we actually understand what the person means. And so likewise, that's a great ringtone, uh, likewise with the, uh, the use of this apocalyptic literature, we're not saying, we're not implying, please don't hear us say that it is important that you believe this, that you take it to heart, any of that kind of stuff. You need to understand it so that you can believe and understand and take to heart uh, this literature, this genre that we find in Scripture itself. Anything to add? So let's say, let's say, okay, so as Americans, we're bound by the Constitution. Okay, that's the important document. 
If I told you that it would be helpful to also go read other works of the Founding Fathers, go read the, uh, somebody want to, we got it, all right, so, uh, and so, so if I were to say, to help you interpret the Constitution, go read the Federalist Papers and go read other writings by the Founding Fathers and these kind of things, I'm not saying those things are part of the Constitution, okay? What I'm saying is those things help you understand the Constitution. And so we're not saying you need to believe or even that you need to even go spend a bunch of time reading all these other books. What we're trying to say is that the Bible is not written in a vacuum. Only the Bible is inspired by God, okay? There are no other texts that are inspired by God like that. However, the biblical authors are using words. And how do we know what those words mean? Well, we have to look elsewhere where they're used. When, when, a, when a New Testament author uses one word that doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible, how do we know what that means? Well, we gotta go see how that word is used in other literature around that same time. So we're not saying you need to believe these books. We're saying these books give you some helpful tools so that when you read the Bible, which alone is God's word, you understand better how to interpret it. So this is meant to give you a benefit of interpretation, not meant to give you new meaning or new revelation. Uh, I like this next question. Uh, What's up with Jude, where Michael fights the devil for the body of Moses? Is that apocalyptic? Is that from intertestamental literature? What do we do with that? Yeah, so I'm not going to answer how to interpret it because we actually have a whole series we want to do on tough texts, and that's one of the tough texts. And so I don't want to give you, that is a reference to First Enoch. Uh, There's also a reference, it it also is mentioned in, oh man, the Testament of Moses or Zephaniah, do you remember which one it is? Anyway, there, there there are several apocalyptic elements outside of the Bible that mention that same story. Jude does not say those books are inspired. Jude does not even interpret it for you. His whole point is to say, you know, that, uh, that you should not just slander the devil or something like that, but rather say the Lord rebuke you. But that's, that's a different thing. So we'll have to wait for the interpretation until we get into that short little mini-series, which I would be dying to do because it's really, we take all the weird passages in the Bible and try to address those. Uh, but the point there is that Jude is referencing something that other Jews have read. It's kind of like I say, you know in the movie The Matrix when he dodges the bullets? It doesn't mean I believe The Matrix is true. I'm using something that you've watched or seen to explain some point I'm making, and that's all that Jude's doing. But That's great. Yeah. Um, this is a great question. So is apocalyptic literature just something that exists within uh, Jewish cultures, or did other Babylonian, Assyrian, did other cultures kind of use the same genre? Yes, so a bunch, of different, a bunch of different cultures have end times, how does the world end kind of themes. We have this, for example, from uh, Persian literature. Uh, we have it from ancient Near Eastern cultures, some of the ones Jeff mentioned, whether it's uh, Sumerian or Akkadian or, uh, or whatever it might be. Egyptian, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of this in Egypt. You have this with uh, the idea of Valhalla, with uh, the Vikings and these kind of things. So there's a lot of cultures that have an end of the world, how are things gonna end, what's the final state of people, why are we spending so much time on Jewish apocalyptic opposed to Persian or Norse? Uh, and the reason is, is because that's what most directly influences the Old Testament and the New Testaments. But yes, there are other types of apocalyptic literature. This may be my favorite question. Have you read all, notice the word all, all of these books that you mentioned? Uh, I have, for you. Yes, uh, I have read some. I have not read all. When it, so I've read all, for example, all the Apocrypha in between the Old and the New Testament, and I've read some Pseudepigrapha. This is what's called Pseudepigrapha. It's these writings that were not written by the authors they claim to be, and there are massive volumes upon volumes upon volumes of it, and that doesn't even count all the rabbinical to- commentary, all the Targums in Aramaic, all that. So it is, it is massive, the amount of work, and so no, I, I have not. 
So, yes. And we'll never. Uh, and we'll never. So Great. That's it. You want to pray? Sure. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that uh, this would not be just a strange lesson or just random facts, but as we continue this course this semester, that uh, we would be encouraged, that maybe for the first time some of these things that just seemed weird to us, we might just start to understand. We might, to fig- we might figure out why Revelation speaks the way that it does. And we might for the first time, instead of being scared of that book, rather enjoy it and be encouraged to know that Christ is coming back and everything's gonna be okay and it's already done for us, it's finished. We've, uh, we've already been justified, we're already saved, it's done. And yet, though life is difficult, we know that there's even more good things that await. I pray that that might be what this, uh, this lesson does in our hearts. So we love you, we thank you, we thank you for Christ who uh, has established your kingdom, that everything will be okay eventually. We thank you that that's already begun and we thank you for saving us. It's in his name that we pray, amen.